All right, so this week is week number three in our Stories That Shaped Us sermon series. Last week we heard from Angela on her story about being lost at a beach. This story is my own and it's not always a fun story to tell. So as I share, offer this to you, I ask that you hold it gently and reflect how it may have some resemblance to the stories in your life. So let us pray. Spirit of the living God, all afresh upon us. Spirit of the living God, melt us, mold us, and use us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh upon us again today. Amen. Don't talk to her. She will lead you down a wrong path. Don't join her Bible study. They aren't actually teaching the gospel there. Don't even listen to her. She is dragging people down to hell with her. Stay away from Chris. She is dangerous. She will lead you astray. And she just twists the Bible for her own use. Don't trust her. These are some of the things I heard on campus spoken about me when I was 20 years old at Albion College. And these were said by people who I thought were my friends. I had been in a Christian Bible study with them, and evidently I had gone astray. I had, when not deemed worthy for leadership in their group, I started my own Bible study with the sole purpose of inviting everyone in, no matter your background, no matter your history, and a place where you can ask questions. And I could take everything that they said about me, some of it almost seemed cartoonish about the responses that Christians will give to people occasionally. But the one that hurt, that cut really deep, is when the, a particular member of that group approached me saying, you need to stop talking to her, meaning a dear, dear friend of mine. I needed to stop talking to her because she almost had her at the place where she wanted. She almost accepted Jesus into her life, and I was causing trouble because I was asking too many hard questions of her. I tell you all this not because I need to be comforted, not because I'm vying for sympathy or pity. I just want you to understand how I went into seminary with deep wounds and a lot of baggage. And... Well, the story, as uncomfortable as it is for me to share, is one that I have found in reflection to mirror that of Jonah. But to understand Jonah's story, we need a little bit more background on him. So as many of the child book stories tell us, good old Jonah was asked to go to Nineveh. And he said, ha, that's cute, God. I'm not going there. I'm going in the other direction. And, well, as we know, the fish swallowed Jonah and spat him back out on shore, and after you've been swallowed by a fish, I think you get the message that you should go to Nineveh. But the dynamic between Jonah and Nineveh is slightly cloaked in the centuries that it's been since then. It's the equivalent of someone from Wyoming going to New York City, Times Square, and having to preach there in the center square. 
Israel was considered this backwoods country on the dusty roads that no one walked on. Jonah was told to go to Assyria. Nineveh was the biggest city in Syria, Assyria at the time, and Assyria was the ruling power in the world. It was no small thing to go to Nineveh, the trade capital at the time. It would be far closer for those of you sports fans to say that a freshman at Ohio State going into the big house at U of M proclaiming that that stadium would crumble. It's not a comfortable thing to do. And so this small town boy going to the big city, there's gotta be a little bit of resentment. Going to the big power, going to a place that's not necessarily safe. So I can imagine if he had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, because if I'm honest with you, I went to seminary with a chip on my shoulder. Because I had been wounded and I was going there to prove that my way of church was better that my Jesus was a better Jesus, and my Jesus would look at the people who hurt me and call them modern Pharisees and a brood of vipers. I had some work to do. As did Jonah, though. Jonah goes into the middle of the city and preaches one of the lamest sermons in the Bible. It meets the technical qualifications of what God asked him to do, but it's one sentence long. He walks in there and says, in four days, this city will be destroyed. And that's it. So people don't change, so why trying to save them? Jonah doesn't think this city will change. And frankly, I don't think he really cares. I don't think he's preaching the sermon because he wants the people of Nineveh to actually change. I think he's just doing it because God told him to. So my first month that I was at seminary, just when you're meeting people, kind of getting used to them, I was sitting at a table of gentlemen that I thought could be potential friends in the future until the conversation took a hard right turn and they started discussing why women shouldn't be ordained. And I looked at them slack-jawed and stunned Half of my brain was going, I, I'm here. I'm here with you at your table and I'm in your classes. Like, how, how, what, why? And the other half of my brain was saying, are we still, are we still having this discussion? I am so tired of this discussion. I am so tired of this argument. So once again, wounds opened up. I was hurt, and I set out at that moment to take apart every piece of their theology that I could. I was going to destroy it if I had my way, any chance that I got. Not out of love for them, no. I wanted to see it gone. Didn't care that they may not be used to approaching scripture in new ways or may have growing to do on their own. I didn't look at them as a potential of growth and understanding. No, I was hurt and I thought that I was right. How could anyone deny that I was called? I am here. So Jonah preaches his half-hearted sermon and then the unthinkable happens. The city repents. 
Everyone tears their clothes, puts on sackcloth, and even the king is sitting in ashes. This wasn't supposed to happen this way. So what does Jonah do but turn around and march out of the city and plop himself down? Because he knows what is supposed to happen at this point. He knows the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. He wants to have front row tickets to see the fire come down. And you can almost see him with his popcorn there munching, waiting for something to happen. And I, I came ready for class. I did my readings. I knew my theology well. And I happened to be very opinionated. And unlike many of my female classmates, I never learned how to be timid. So I had people trying to cut me off, and trust me, I can speak louder and more passionately than they can, so I thought I was right. If only in that time, I thought, if I could just poke enough holes, their water wouldn't hold, water wouldn't hold in their theology, and I just could see it crumble. I wanted to see it crumble the way Jonah wanted to see the city crumble. But the city didn't burn. Contrary to his expectations, God heard Nineveh's repentance and accepted it. God relented had mercy on a city, didn't send the fire or the destruction. Jonah's response? Jonah's response is possibly one of the most human things that he could have said, even if it's humorous to us at a distance. Jonah responded with, this is why I didn't want to come. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were merciful, God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I didn't want to come because I knew you would forgive them. And I don't want to, is the subtext. Jonah didn't want to. So during my second year of seminary, I finally got out of the classroom, which had become a toxic area for me to be in. And I got out of the classroom into a church. I was in a small, about a hundred person church. You knew everyone there. But theology became no longer something that was debated and like poked at, but something that got people through their day-to-day -day lives. Theology was the thing that helped comfort when they lost someone the soothing balm when late life got chaotic, I saw the true purpose of theology and it wasn't the classroom. And I spent time with them. It's the dangerous thing to do when you spend time getting to know people, getting enmeshed in their problems and just walking alongside them. Even going so far as getting invited to Easter brunch here, I learned that poking holes in theology that I thought was bad ran the risk of not crumbling theology, but the entire person. It, to leave them deflated and in pieces, and I wouldn't always be there to put them back together. Far better to actually walk alongside someone Better to hold hands with them through their problems, step into their lives and walk with them towards God that is loving. So, Jonah. Jonah 
we find him still on that hill, stubbornly waiting for God to do something that's never gonna happen. So God decides this might be a teaching moment and takes the time to come alongside Jonah and grow a plant. The plant grows, Jonah's happy. When the plant gets eaten, Jonah gets melodramatic again, wishing to die. And God's response? You're concerned about the plant dying? The plant that you did nothing for, it just appeared. I made the people in Nineveh. You wanted me to destroy that city and I made each and every person in it and the animals. I made them and I love them and you wanted me to destroy them just because. So I returned my third year, still chewing on my experience in the church. And I realized I had been fiercely guarding my call to ministry. My call that, mind you, I didn't really have much say in. God calls who God calls. There's not really a good application process to heaven to tell God about this. So I had been guarding this call that God had put on my life and focused on guarding it and being right that I forgot to see that my, the people that I thought were my opponents and my adversaries, they were children of God too. God's beloved, cherished even, also called by God to serve God's community even if I didn't understand it. See, we all love to talk about God being gracious and loving when it's pointed at us. We want God's forgiveness, but once it becomes someone that's a little harder to love, we want to pull back the reins. When we want to restrict God's love with the people that have hurt us or we see as damaging or dangerous, we become far closer to Jonah than we ever are comfortable with. We like to have a clear sense of right and wrong and we stand ready to invoke God's judgment. And I know that and I will say that because I was there. I wanted to do that. I wanted to do that because I was hurt and hadn't yet healed. And I was ultimately terrified of a God who is loving and forgiving because God being willing to love and forgive before you is scary. It leaves you open and exposed, almost like standing in winter without your coat on. It's not easy. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all have groups in our lives. Just like Jonah, where we are tempted to say, this is why I don't want to face them. I don't want to interact with them, God, because I know that you are gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And if I get too close to them, I will realize I need to be too. If I get too close, I might actually have to forgive them or love them or see that you are merciful. But the best news I can offer you today is that God is, in fact, gracious, merciful, 
slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and willing to work with our stubbornness. Even when we feel scared and angry and hurt, God knows these things and chooses to walk alongside us anyways. God does not abandon us when we march outside the city to watch what happens. No, our God shapes us slowly, choosing to walk alongside us, enter in our lives, even when it's painful, even when it might be deadly. So, my journey of learning to love is not over yet. But I want to leave you all with a gift. The gift being a little bit of poetry that helped me understand God a little better. This is a poem called Name That Meat. It is one that helped me heal and understand a little more the complex nature of what God is asking of us. In one breath, we are having dinner. She's having 50 square feet of death known as a hamburger. I am eating my organic, vegan, local salad, no meat, no cheese, and please hold the dressing because I don't want to exploit the little honeybees. But when we meet you, she will be a thousand times more likely to greet you with open arms than me. I'm uptight and selfish. She sit down and join us. You look heartbroken. How is your family? And I'm choking on my lettuce right about now, begging the cows to come home and prove me holier than thou. But it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, and I have a closet full of protest signs buried by all the times that I wish I had been kinder to a friend wished that I had listened better than I did, wished that I had walked the line to your doorstep the night you were holding your last breath like a kite string in a lightning storm. These things confuse me. Who gets to decide who God's angels will be? Because we all grow in two directions, one towards the sky, holding hymns and battle cries for all the world to see, and the other beneath the surface, roots beneath, gripping a truth less obvious. I'm never gonna eat a hamburger, love. You're never gonna not say hello with a smile in your eyes, like a porch light welcoming the broken world home. And this is how we'll grow, in every direction. The answers are easy, it's the questions that are hard. What can you teach me? What can I learn here? Whoever you are, are you also looking for a soft place to sleep? Are you in search of a dark night, holding the quiet light of six billion wishful stars? Amen.